Welcome to Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. This is episode 30, and I am your host, Peter Alegi, with my co-host... Peter Lim. And this is the first of an exciting series of programs we're doing on Africa and the African diaspora. In the second episode, we'll discuss with Professor Robert Vinson the history of Garveyism in Africa. And in a later episode, in September... Professor Ned Alpers of UCLA will discuss the Indian Ocean diaspora and East Africa. Well, today we go right back to uh, what we might call the beating heart of uh, Marcus Garvey and his Universal Negro Improvement Association, founded in 1914, to interview Professor Robert A. Hill of UCLA, the editor of the truly magisterial multi-volume Marcus Garvey and Universal Negro Improvement Association papers that has been coming out since 1983 from the University of California Press with more exciting volumes on the blocks. And Professor Hill is just back from Jamaica, the birthplace of the amazing Marcus Garvey. Welcome, Professor Hill. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and to join you and your students and your audience. Uh, for this conversation. Thank you very much. Well, before we turn to the uh, papers that I just mentioned and your work as editor-in-chief, can we just ask uh, briefly about your own background and how your interest in Garvey and his movement began? Surely. I'm a Jamaican and I became aware of Marcus Garvey, um, who is Jamaica's first national hero. I became aware of Garvey through my uncle, who was a journalist. I was 18 years old. I was uh, attending one of Jamaica's leading uh, secondary schools. I was 18 years old, as I mentioned, and I had never heard the name Marcus Garvey up until that point. In a sense, it's a testament to the tremendous success of a British colonial education that it had erased any any memory of Marcus Garvey in terms of our educational system. And my uncle had written this uh, tribute to Garvey, showed it to me before it was to be published. I read it and I simply couldn't believe that a Jamaican had achieved um, such a such an enormous uh, achievement on a world scale. And so I set about trying to rectify that problem. I was invited to participate in an island-wide essay competition that the history teachers of Jamaica, who had just founded an association of history teachers, and lo and behold, uh, on the list of three topics was the two words, Marcus Garvey. And I said, okay, so this might be an opportunity for me to get to know more about Marcus Garvey. I wrote an essay, and the essay won the the national prize, and it was announced in the newspaper, and 
I started getting telephone calls from people who were associated with Marcus Garvey. Now remember, this is 1961, 62. Right. And through meeting them, and they inviting me to come to their meetings, I was drawn uh, more and more into the web of what you might call today popular memory. And that's how I got started, 1961, 62. It's an amazing story. And, uh, and then you moved on later into the, uh, the locating and the collecting, the editing of, of this, these wi widely scattered Garvey papers. I've been yes. looking at the first volume in 1983 and also the most recent volume and clearly it's a breathtaking breadth of, uh, of, of sources widely scattered. Uh, some yes. unfortunately are lost perhaps forever but um, yes. the colonial powers which you mentioned, the British colonialism in Jamaica, the, these yes. colonial powers across Africa and mm. in the metropolis, they in their frantic efforts to repress the Garvey movement, they must have left a huge paper trail. That's correct. That's correct. And I set about, when I came to America, I was invited to give a series of lectures here in America in 1970. And I, I was, you might say, in the right place at the right time. Yes. The movement of black studies had just begun, and there was a huge interest, uh, a huge revival of interest in black nationalism, and of course Garvey being the 20th century avatar of, of the phenomenon of pan-Africanism, black nationalism. I, I had, if you will, a ready-made audience and then that spring of 1970, a huge cache of Garvey UNIA papers was discovered in an abandoned building in Harlem. And because I happened to be in America, I was invited by the Schomburg to be a sort of consultant, curator of these papers. They, it was an enormous cache of papers. And while sorting them and organizing them, the thought came to me, um, I was then living as a guest of John Henry Clark. Uh -huh. uh, he lived at, at 137th Street. This was in the period of the what's called the old Schomburg building at 135th Street. And one night I was walking back uh, to John's house and the thought came to me that if I could do this work that I was doing in Harlem, if I could replicate it in every country where Marcus Garvey had had an influence, it might be possible to put together and reconstitute in a sense uh, the archive of this movement and in the spring of 1971, I took off um, with $200 in my pocket for Europe. And that's really between the collection in Harlem in 1970 and that trip to Europe in the spring of 71. That's the genesis of what became 
known as the Marcus Garvey and UNIA Papers Project, because up until that time, there had never been a parent collection or a host collection of or an archive of the Garvey movement. It had to be built, in other words, from scratch. But by doing that, you learned, uh, the investigator learned about how the movement actually took form and took shape in a variety of settings. That's different from just walking in to a library, say the Library of Congress, walking in and saying, I'd like to see the Garvey papers. Yes. You, before you had material to edit, you had to have the papers to work from. And that gave me a, a, a really intimate sense of why the movement was different uh, from place to place. And it also helped me to understand that Garvey himself, even though his name was associated with the movement, that Garvey himself knew very little. And the little that Garvey knew about his own movement, he largely misunderstood the movement. So I began to see that there were cleavages, there were uh, ruptures between the center of the movement, which was New York, and its outlying, its periphery, if you will, uh, and how that uh, dialectic, that tension between the American headquarters of the movement and the colonial divisions of the movement, how that played out. And that's something that's fascinating to think about. If I could uh, uh, interject here, because this is really quite fascinating, there's a split, if I remember correctly, in the UNIA in 1929 between the New York organization and Correct. the one in Jamaica. Um, yes. And as, as uh, uh, Robert Vinson will tell us in the next podcast, of course, South Africa was a very vibrant center of, of Garveyite activity. Um, yes. What were uh, these uh, internal splits and cleavages about? What were the, 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 yes. the, the issues uh, at play here? Can you tell us a little bit yes. about these? Sure. Marcus Garvey, as many of your listeners uh, know or will remember, Marcus Garvey was tried and convicted on mail fraud charges brought by the federal government. These mail fraud charges were really um, a pretext to suppress Garvey and, and Garvey's influence. Anyway, Garvey is convicted in 1923. He appeals, he loses his appeal, and he goes to start serving his sentence in the Atlanta penitentiary, the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. While he is in prison, a number of former employees bring a suit against Garvey for the non-payment of back salaries. One of them was a Sierra Leonean who had been the deputy uh, potentate of the UNIA. His name was George A. Mark. Mark's, um, Mark was awarded uh, a sum of money uh, against the UNIA. But the UNIA didn't have any assets 
by this time, the UNIA had lost pretty much all of its properties in New York. Garvey's deported from the United States after his sentence was commuted in 1927. The UNIA owned quite a bit of property in Jamaica. So Mark then uh, brought suit in the court in the courts of Jamaica to levy against the property of the UNIA in Jamaica in order to get paid. Well, Garvey decided at that point to forestall uh, this suit by claiming that the UNIA in Jamaica was not uh, legally part of the body in New York, which is where uh, Mark's uh, claim uh, could have been upheld. Garvey decided to use this legal tactic of reincorporating the UNIA in Jamaica in order to make it legally separate from the American UNIA. And that's when he called reincorporate the reincorporated body in Jamaica, the UNIA, 9, August 1929 of the world. And that's the the context of this split in 1929. Right. And of course, Mark's Sierra Leonean background reminds me of the immense scope of the Garvey movement that touched virtually all continents. Uh, yes. In fact, John Maynard's recent book even shows the influence of Garveyism on Australian Aboriginal activism in the 20s. Um, and across Africa, the, the movement reached from the Gambia in the West to Mogadishu to Cape Town. And um, I'm reminded that in the editing of this series, you have more recently developed uh, an Africa series. Um, yes. Talk a little bit about the decision uh, and the, uh, the sorts of issues of selection and editing, of textual analysis yes. that you've had to face with this um, uh, this separate yes. Africa series. Yes. This was one of the early decisions uh, that we took. The edition, which will, when it's completed, uh, consists of 15 volumes. We've now published 10, and there are two more in the pipeline. So we're coming close to the end, but the decision was taken very early to split the overall edition into three series. The American series, the African series, and the Caribbean series. The, f the feeling I had and the belief uh, that supported this was that if you, if you lumped all of the documents and papers drawn from each of the separate spheres into a single seamless chronological arrangement, it would be very difficult to appreciate the African movement or the Caribbean movement as distinct from the American Garvey movement. So this was an early structural decision. I must tell you that it was criticized by other editors 
who were um, members of the National Endowment for the Humanities uh, uh, Committee uh, for textual tools. Because you see, the, the premise is that when you're doing a historical documentary edition, uh, the editors must not interpose or impose, at least this is the myth, must not impose their own subjective arrangement uh, on the material. So what you do is you start with the earliest document and you end with the, with the latest document. So chronology is the method by which the papers are supposed to be arranged. By my going against this premise and arranging them spatially, I was in effect um, uh, going out on a limb. Well, we finished the American series, that's the first seven volumes, and there are three volumes that make up the African series, um, which consists of volumes eight, nine, and and 10. 9 and 10 have been published and we're still putting the finishing touches on uh, the first of the three African volumes. The two volumes that are in the pipeline uh, right now are the first two of three Caribbean volumes. When those three Caribbean volumes are published we will then conclude the entire edition with two volumes devoted just to Jamaica. Again, within the Caribbean series, we took the decision uh, because the Jamaican documents and the Jamaican Garvey movement loomed quantitatively so large, we took the decision to publish the Jamaican documents in a separate two-volume series. So the first three volumes of the Caribbean are all of the Caribbean and Caribbean Basin territories, the islands, the Central American countries, the two mainland territories of Belize and Guyana. Um, the Garvey movement in Brazil made up largely of um, Barbadian uh, immigrant workers in the Amazon. We decided to publish those papers uh, under the rubric of the Caribbean uh, to be followed by two Jamaican volumes. So that was the logic, for better or worse, that I felt gave the best, uh, clearest expression of the structure of the movement. This is very interesting in terms of how you uh, had to debate the organization of the series. And, and um, were there other issues of selection and editing uh, that you and, and yes. fellow editors faced and continue to face? Yes. Um, when we finished the manuscript of the first two volumes, I was criticized by some of the uh, eminent editors in this field because uh, they said that I, I seem to think that I had an obligation to give every single individual mentioned in these papers uh, 
their 15 minutes of fame. Um, and I said, yes, that's correct. So that even the most obscure figure in these papers, we invested a tremendous amount of time and energy and, and thought into giving them uh, a biographical annotation, putting some flesh, in other words, on their names. Contrast that with the rule of thumb that was used in the editing of the Lafayette papers published by Cornell University Press. Uh, as you know, Lafayette's role in the American Revolution is very, very uh, important. The editor, uh, Stan Itzerda, of the Lafayette papers, his rule of thumb is that his editors and research assistants, if they go to the library and within 30 minutes they are not able to identify and find supporting material for a name in any of their documents, they strike that name off the list. If we did that for Africans and African Americans and people of African descent in the Caribbean, we wouldn't have anybody to annotate. Simply because the reference works aren't there. Well, we're very grateful that uh, you did strike out in that direction, Robert, because as a historian of Africa, I'm making use uh, tremendously of the volumes on Africa. And well, for instance, you. my own research into the early history of the African National Congress and its newspaper, Abantu Batu, the various sources on Gavi and Gaviism have have, have have drawn out and the annotations that your scholars and your editors have added have stimulated, I'm sure, new research and new biographies. And this, after all, is what it's all about, is rescuing from the condescension of history and the, and the oppression oh, of colonialism, all these figures. But mm -hmm. So then how can we estimate the impact, do you think, of the series? I know this is very hard for an editor, uh, but uh, given this early criticism that you faced, um, what can we say about its impact generally? And is it creating and stimulating new research? Yes, you just have to look at the MA and PhD theses uh, that are being uh, written and published. Many uh, of these um, volumes uh, and their annotations and their documents are form the basis of several new dissertations uh, that have been written. In other words, a graduate student consulting any of these volumes, uh, doing a paper, will begin to be able to identify potential subjects for um, uh, doctoral research. And that is happening in the field of African-American history, Caribbean history, and African history. But let us not uh, narrow this just to um, the world of the academy. Because the Garvey movement was a grassroots movement, a popular movement, descendants of these people today are doing genealogical research on their families and their family histories 
using these volumes. There are many people who write to us asking us if we have information or they have found information in these volumes on a grandparent or a great-grandparent and they send us photographs, they send us documents from their attics. In other words, this has stimulated uh, uh, a level of genealogical research in the history of the individuals taking it to a much deeper level. The right. resonance of these volumes therefore go beyond the academy and reach into nooks and crannies of black communities in a way that is really um, most amazing. And, and this highlights really one of the legacies of not just your astounding work, but also of Garvey today. Uh, and maybe this is an apt way to start to bring the conversation to a close, to ask mm -hmm. you, Robert Hill, what is the legacy of Garvey today? Well, that's, uh, that's an, a question that I think about a great deal. It's, it seems to me that in the case, uh, to use the case of South Africa, um, the connection between the Garvey, um, the ideology of African fundamentalism, Africa for the Africans, that the revival of the African struggle in South Africa after World War II drew very heavily on the legacy, the radicalism of the interwar years in which the Garvey movement uh, played a central role. Beyond South Africa, we have the Garvey movement in Nigeria. The awakening of political um, independence, the idea, the struggle for political independence after 1945 draws very heavily on people like Azikiwe, uh, on the Garvey movement in, um, in uh, southwest Nigeria among the Yoruba. Um, in Ghana we know of the impact of Garvey's thought on Kwame Nkrumah the naming of the um, of the Ghanaian national steamship line, the Black Star Line, and then in America, Garvey's motto "Black is Beautiful" uh, became quite central to the rise of black consciousness here in America in the 1960s and 70s. In the Caribbean, Garvey's movement uh, is central to the emergence of Rastafari in, in the Caribbean, so that you can find resonances. Anything that taps um, a sensitivity that deep in a, in, in a community of struggle, as I refer to, to our people, uh, co these communities of struggle retain their own inherited sense of values and a vision of what's possible. And in that sense, I think Garvey is as relevant today as he was, as uh, the movement was in the 20s. Indeed, it's a, it's a vast cultural and political impact. Well, thank you so very much, Professor Robert Hill.
Thank you, Peter. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you also to your listeners for spending time with us. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Chris Johnson, Ryan Blyton, and Alicia Scheel. For more information about this show and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. If you have any comments or suggestions for future shows, please send us a message at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.